And welcome to the Shelf Care Interview Podcast. I'm Sarah Hunter, editor of the Books for Youth and Graphic Novel sections at Booklist Magazine. In today's installment, we have the pleasure of hearing from Allie Carter, and we're going to talk about her latest novel, Winterborne Home for Mayhem and Mystery, the sequel to Winterborne Home for Vengeance and Valor. Special thanks to HMH Books for Young Readers for sponsoring this podcast. Allie Carter writes books about sentinels, thieves, spies, and diplomats. She is a New York Times bestselling author whose novels have sold over 3 million copies and have been published in more than 20 countries. She's the acclaimed author of a middle grade series about a mischievous young orphan and her vigilante guardian, that's Winterborne Home, three YA series about the world's best teenage art thieves, Heist Society, the world's coolest spy school, Gallagher Girls, including I'll Tell You That I Love You, But Then I'd Have to Kill You, and the granddaughter of a diplomat who has to find her mother's killer on Embassy Row, as well as the standalone novel, Not If I Save You First. She lives in Oklahoma, where her life is either very ordinary or the best deep cover story ever. Thanks so much for being here, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. So tell us about Winterborne Home for Mayhem and Mystery. Well, as you said in your lovely intro, it is the sequel to Winterborne Home for Vengeance and Valor. And these two books are my middle grade debuts. So it was it was a lot of fun to write something for younger kids and for an audience that's just sort of generally appreciates whimsy and fun and sort of heightened circumstances and situations. When I started exploring the middle grade market and thinking about, okay, if I were to write something uh, a little bit younger than what I've been doing, what are the things about that age group and about that market that I enjoy the most? And I think what I, I wanted to do was I wanted to go back to something kind of like what I had done with the early Gallagher Girl books, because somebody had told me, If you were to publish Gallagher Girls today, those would probably, especially like books one through three, would probably be published as middle grade because the market has just kind of steadily moved a little bit older and a little bit older and a little bit older since book one was published in, I think it was 2005 or 2006. It was really important to me to find like another setting where a bunch of ragtag group of kids can live together. But I didn't want to do another boarding school book because I felt like you know everybody would be just be like why didn't you do another Gallagher girls book so I wanted to find a different kind of like group home type setting naturally that led me to orphanages but I didn't want to do just a regular orphanage I needed to do something that was kind of heightened I was actually watching Batman and when Bruce Wayne basically goes away and disappears for 10 years and then comes back and everybody thought he was dead and I thought okay what happened to Wayne Manor during that time like, it's a, was it just sitting there with like Alfred sort of dusting stuff for 10 years or, or what, what's going on there? And I thought, what if they turned that house into an orphanage? Then I got to thinking about, okay, and what if Bruce Wayne came back ready to like take on the mantle of Batman, only like a bunch of kids have moved into his house. <laughs> and what if he didn't tell anybody he was back, but these kids are the only ones who realize he's alive? That's really where it all started. It was started with the house and it started with the idea of this very, very famous billionaire who everybody assumes is dead. And especially this orphan, this group of kids, but especially one girl named April, who has been looking for her mother for 10 long years. And she is convinced that the sort of literal key to finding her mother is somewhere within Winterborn House. When she finds out the Gabriel Winterborn is alive and well and living in the basement, she's like, there it is. That's the key. This guy's going to help me find my mom. 
everything else in the entire series sort of grew out of those two characters. Cool. So returning to my intro, you clearly are writing a lot about spies, thieves, and secret identities. What's the appeal of that for you personally? And why do you think that type of story is appealing to middle grade readers? You know, I have no idea why I keep going back to that. Like my, you know, everybody's always like, well, I want you to do like, you know, your sort of more awardy type book or a quieter type book. Or, you know, I was, I was born and raised on a farm. They're like, we want to do do like a a girl who lives on a farm. And I'm like, okay, but then what, you know, then then how do you, how do you (laughs) like make that more exciting than just, I live on a farm and I do chores. And sometimes I show cattle at the, at the county fair. And I, I think that I just, my, my mind always gravitates toward, and then what? And so I just always want to make stories a little bit bigger and have a little higher stakes. And (laughs) I was working several years ago back in the before times when you could actually leave the house and go and sit in a coffee shop or someplace all day and write. I was doing that. I was on deadline for something and I was talking to a friend and I said, oh, I got to go home, you know, but I have to remember to, to, to bury my route home. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, well, when I've been out like this and I always leave about the same time and everything, I always take a different route because I heard one time that if you take the same route every day, it makes you easier to kidnap. And my friend was like, do you really think somebody's trying to kidnap you? I'm like, no, but you've got to, you know, why make it easy on them if by the off chance that they are? And she just died laughing. And she was like, she said, do you do that because you write about spies? And I had to think about it for a long time. And I realized, no, I write about spies because I do that. I've just always been wired kind of that way. Um, (laughs) And so that's why I'm drawn to it. Why kids are drawn to it. I think because they too are in that everything could be a secret passageway. Everything could be a secret identity. Everything could be a gadget or a gizmo, or is that a can of actual shaving cream? Or is that a canister that carries a prototype that starts World War III? I don't know. (laughs) There's no way to tell for sure. So I think that in that sense, 12-year-olds and I are very much alike. (laughs) <laughs> I heard once that the distinction between middle grade and YA is YA, you're learning about yourself and middle grade, you're learning about the world that you live in. Oh, and if you're just learning about the world that you live in, then like there's endless possibility for like every object you look at or a new place you go to, like you don't know for sure whether know. that door leads somewhere special or is just a closet or a wardrobe. Exactly. I mean, I grew up obsessed with secret passageways and that's the one thing that I think, I don't know if there is an Allie Carter book that doesn't have some sort of secret passageway. Probably the High Society books, but they kind of make their own secret passageways in and out of things. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, like Embassy Rose, secret passageways. Gallagher Academy, secret passageways. Winterborn Home for Vengeance and Valor, so many secret passageways. (laughs) Um, Even Not If I Save You First, they're exploring the, the White House that is in their world full of secret passageways. So it's something that definitely is consistent in everything that I do. Cool. So besides secret passageways, what inspires your writing just in general? Just in general that I always start with characters and world. And one question that I have to ask for sure at the beginning of the process, but more than likely I ask it multiple times during the process, which is what's the worst that can happen? It is always my job to mess these people's lives up in the most interesting way possible. Hmm. If the worst thing that could possibly happen for you is to get stuck in a room with 
your mortal enemy, then that is what I'm going to do. <laughs> it's very, it's in a way, it's my job to be as cruel as possible. <laughs> um, and, and, but I think that that's, that is how you push people and that's how you get your characters to grow. Also, I need an immense amount of conflict when I write <laughs> and I really want there to always be plenty of gas in the tank because I find that if, if a book runs out of conflict, it's kind of like it stalls out going up a hill. It's very, very much my job. And I've learned this um, at the, to as soon as possible and as much as I can make it inherent in the concept of the book, the conflict, the hmm. easier that book is going to be to write. For example, with Winterborn, the conflict very much early on was Gabriel wants to find out what happened to his family and to bring down the people who killed his parents. April just wants to find her mother. They each have what seem to be very different separate goals and they each seem to be what's standing in each other's way in a way they're very much antagonists for a lot of the books mm-hmm. but then but they're also very much allies because they realize that they're the only people who actually really see each other and they are becoming their own family mm-hmm. they have plenty of things plenty of goals plenty of external goals but then with a whole host of both internal and external conflict to go along with that. So tell me a little bit about how libraries have played a role in your reading or your writing life. Oh my gosh. So I was so incredibly lucky as a kid. I went to a very, very small, very rural public school and we had the most amazing librarian when I was in elementary school. Her name is Joan Bennett. She was my librarian first through fifth grade. And then when I went to middle school, Mrs. Bennett actually got moved from the elementary school to the high school. So by the time I got to high school, I got to have Mrs. Bennett as my librarian for ninth through 12th grade. (laughs) I was so incredibly lucky that all but three years of my education was with Joan Bennett as my librarian. And she is just the most kind, generous woman. And then when I got out of school and was living in a very small town in in Southeast Kansas, a little town called Chinook, Kansas, um, it's a tiny town. It's about 10,000 people. It has a Walmart and a small movie theater and a really, really great public library. Hmm. And the public librarian there was a woman named Susan Willis. And Susan and the rest of the staff at the library were very, very supportive of me and my writing. There was a little table kind of tucked back behind the staircase. And that was kind of my table. I would go and I would sit there on my days off, like on a Saturday morning, I'd go and I'd sit and I'd write all day long. And they would just let me chill back there and do my thing. And they were just so, so kind and lovely. And now, of course, as an author, I cannot even begin to express what libraries have have meant to me and to to my readership. And I remember going early on in my career to things like ALA or TLA or something and feeling a little intimidated because I'm like, you know, I'm not the person who's here because I won the Newberry, like Mm. never going to be that person. And that's (laughs) fine. That is totally cool. But I'd be like, why did they send me here? I don't belong here. But then I realized that that librarians don't just support the books that win awards. Librarians right. support the books that they know the kid who that book needs to be in their hands. Yeah. And that, that I realized that the highest praise you can get from a librarian is your books are never on my shelf. <laughs> yeah. And, and I started hearing that from librarians and, and seeing what that meant to them. And 
and and it meant so much to me. So when you're not writing, what do you like to read? Um, I love to read adult romance. That's probably what I read the most of, even though I know there's so much phenomenal kid lit being published right now. I mean, just the golden age of children's literature. But when I'm writing, I I try to read things that are different from what I'm writing, Mm because otherwise it gets in my head and I'm like, I'll never be as good as this book or, you know, what am I doing wrong? I like to read sort of out of my genre. So I read a lot of adult romance. I've actually started doing some screenwriting. And so I read a lot of screenplays because Mm. here in the past, I don't know, five to 10 years, all of the major studios, especially this time of year, actually, will put up all of their screenplays that they want to win big awards. They'll just post them on their website. So if you like go to the Sony website, you can find most of the Sony screenplays for that year. And, and, and past years, you can read so many amazing screenplays. And I really like that because even if you're not a screenwriter, you can kind of look under the hood and see kind of the bones of what they've done, which I find is really interesting from a craft standpoint. So yeah, that's, that's a lot of what I read. Well, that's it for this installment. Thanks again to Allie Carter for being here and talking about reading and writing and libraries and secret passageways, and to our sponsor, HMH Books for Young Readers. 